chill books original. Moral Letters to Lucilius, or Letters from a Stoic, by Seneca. Letters 29 to 39. Translated by Richard M. Gummer. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Letter 29. On the critical condition of Marcellinus. 1. You have been inquiring about our friend Marcellinus, and you desire to know how he is getting along. He seldom comes to see me, for no other reason than that he is afraid to hear the truth, and at present he is removed from any danger of hearing it. For one must not talk to a man unless he is willing to listen. That is why it is often doubted whether Diogenes and the other cynics, who employed an undiscriminating freedom of speech and offered advice to any who came in their way, ought to have pursued such a plan. 2. For what if one should chide the deaf or those who are speechless from birth or by illness? But you answer, why should I spare words? They cost nothing. I cannot know whether I shall help the man to whom I give advice, but I know well that I shall help someone if I advise many. I must scatter this advice by the handful. It is impossible that one who tries often should not sometimes succeed. 3. This very thing, my dear Lucilius, is, I believe, exactly what a great solved man ought not to do. His influence is weakened. It has too little effect upon those whom it might have set right if it had not grown so stale. The archer ought not to hit the mark only sometimes. He ought to miss it only sometimes. That which takes effect by chance is not an art. Now wisdom is an art. It should have a definite aim, choosing only those who will make progress, but withdrawing from those whom it has come to regard as hopeless, yet not abandoning them too soon, and just when the case is becoming hopeless trying drastic remedies. 4. As to our friend Marcellinus, I have not yet lost hope. He can still be saved, but helping hand must be offered soon. There is indeed danger that he may pull his helper down, for there is in him a native character of great vigor, though it is already inclining to wickedness. Nevertheless, I shall brave this danger and be bold enough to show him his faults. 5. He will act in his usual way. He will have recourse to his wit. The wit that can call forth smiles even from mourners. He will turn the jest, first against himself, and then against me. He will forestall every word which I am about to utter. He will quiz our philosophic systems. He will accuse philosophers of accepting doles, keeping mistresses, and indulging your appetites. He will point out to me one philosopher who has been caught in adultery, another who haunts the cafes, and another who appears at court. 6. He will bring to my notice Aristo, the philosopher of Marcus Lepidus, who used to hold discussions in his carriage, for that was the time which he had taken for editing his researches, so that Scorus said of him when asked to what school he belonged. At any rate, he isn't one of the walking philosophers. Julius Gracinus, too, a man of distinction, when asked for an opinion on the same point, replied, I cannot tell you, for I don't know what he does when dismounted, as if the query referred to a chariot gladiator. 7. It is mountebanks of that sort, for whom it would be more creditable to have left philosophy alone than to traffic in her, whom Marcellinus will throw in my teeth. But I have decided to put up with taunts, he may stir my laughter, but I perchance shall stir him to tears, or, if he persist in his jokes, I shall rejoice, so to speak, in the midst of sorrow because he is blessed with such a merry sort of lunacy. But that kind of merriment does not last long. Observe such men, 
and you will note that within a short space of time, they laugh to excess and rage to excess. 8. It is my plan to approach him and to show him how much greater was his worth when many thought it less. Even though I shall not root out his faults, I shall put a check upon them. They will not cease, but they will stop for a time, and perhaps they will even cease if they get the habit of stopping. This is a thing not to be despised, since to men who are seriously stricken the blessing of relief is a substitute for health. 9. So while I prepare myself to deal with Marcellinus, do you in the meantime, who are able, and do understand whence and whither you have made your way, and who for that reason have an inkling of the distance yet to go, regulate your character, rouse your courage, and stand firm in the face of things which have terrified you. Do not count the number of those who inspire fear in you. Would you not regard as foolish one who is afraid of a multitude in a place where only one at a time could pass? Just so, there are not many who have access to you to slay you, though there are many who threaten you with death. Nature has so ordered it that, as only one has given you life, so only one will take it away. 10. If you had any shame, you would have let me off from paying the last installment. Still, I shall not be niggardly either, but shall discharge my debts to the last penny and force upon you what I still owe. I have never wished to cater to the crowd. For what I know, they do not approve, and what they approve, I do not know. 11. Who said this? You ask, as if you were ignorant whom I am pressing into service. It is Epicurus. But this same watchword rings in your ears from every sect, peripatetic, academic, stoic, cynic. For who that is pleased by virtue can please the crowd. It takes trickery to win popular approval, and you must needs make yourself like unto them. They will withhold their approval if they do not recognize you as one of themselves. However, what you think of yourself is much more to the point than what others think of you. The favor of ignoble men can be won only by ignoble means. 12. What benefit, then, will that vaunted philosophy confer, whose praises we sing and which, we are told, is to be preferred to every art and every possession? Assuredly, it will make you prefer to please yourself rather than the populace. It will make you weigh, and not merely count, men's judgments. It will make you live without fear of gods or men. It will make you either overcome evils or end them. Otherwise, if I see you applauded by popular acclamation, if your entrance upon the scene is greeted by a roar of cheering and clapping, marks of distinction meet only for actors. If the whole state, even the women and children, sing your praises, how can I help pitying you? For I know what pathway leads to such popularity. Farewell. Letter 30. On Conquering the Conqueror. 1. I have beheld Aphidius Bassus, that nobleman, shattered in health and wrestling with his years. But they already bear upon him so heavily that he cannot be raised up. Old age has settled down upon him with great, yes, with its entire weight. You know that his body was always delicate and sapless. For a long time he has kept it in hand, or, to speak more correctly, has kept it together, of a sudden it has collapsed. 2. Just as in a ship that springs a leak, you can always stop the first or the second fissure, but when many holes begin to open and let in water, the gaping hall cannot be saved. Similarly, in an old man's body, there is a certain limit up to which you can sustain and prop its weakness. But when it comes to resemble a decrepit building, when every joint begins to spread, and while one is being repaired another falls apart, then it is time for a man to look about him and consider how he may get out. 3. But the mind of our friend Bassus is active. Philosophy bestows this boon upon us. It makes us joyful in the very sight of death, strong and brave, no matter in what state the body may be, cheerful and never failing though the body fail us. A great pilot can sail even when his canvas is rent. 
If his ship be dismantled, he can yet put in trim what remains of her hull and hold her to her course. This is what our friend Bassus is doing, and he contemplates his own end with the courage and countenance which he would regard as undue indifference in a man who so contemplated another's. 4. This is a great accomplishment, Lucilius, and one which needs long practice to learn, to depart calmly when the inevitable hour arrives. Other kinds of death contain an ingredient of hope. A disease comes to an end. A fire is quenched. Falling houses are set down in safety those whom they seemed certain to crush. The sea is cast ashore, unharmed those whom it had engulfed, by the same force through which it drew them down. The soldier has drawn back his sword from the very neck of his doomed foe. But those whom old age is leading away to death have nothing to hope for. Old age alone grants no reprieve. No ending, to be sure, is more painless, but there is none more lingering. 5. Our friend Bassus seemed to me to be attending his own funeral, and laying out his own body for burial, and living almost as if he had survived his own death, and bearing with wise resignation his grief at his own departure. For he talks freely about death, trying hard to persuade us that if this process contains any element of discomfort or of fear, it is the fault of the dying person, and not of death itself, also that there is no more inconvenience at the actual moment than there is after it is over. 6. And it is just as insane, he adds, for a man to fear what will not happen to him, as to fear what he will not feel if it does happen. Or does anyone imagine it to be possible that the agency by which feeling is removed can be itself felt? Therefore, says Bassus, death stands so far beyond all evil that it is beyond all fear of evils. 7. I know that all this has often been said and should be often repeated, but neither when I read them were such precepts so affected with me, nor when I heard them from the lips of those who were at a safe distance from the fear of the things which they declared were not to be feared. But this old man had the greatest weight with me when he discussed death and death was near. 8. For I must tell you what I myself think. I have owned that one is braver at the very moment of death than when one is approaching death. For death, when it stands near us, gives even to inexperienced men the courage not to seek to avoid the inevitable. So the gladiator, who throughout the fight has been no matter how faint-hearted, offers his throat to his opponent and directs the wavering blade to the vital spot. But an end that is near at hand, and is bound to come, calls for tenacious courage of soul. This is a rarer thing, and none but the wise man can manifest it. 9. Accordingly, I listened to Bassus with the deepest pleasure. He was casting his vote concerning death and pointing out what sort of a thing it is when it is observed, so to speak, near at hand. I suppose that a man would have your confidence in a larger degree, and would have more weight with you, if he had come back to life, and should declare from experience that there is no evil in death. And so, regarding the approach of death, those will tell you best what disquiet it brings who have stood in its path, who have seen it coming and have welcomed it. 10. Bassus may be included among these men, and he had no wish to deceive us. He says that it is as foolish to fear death as to fear old age, for death follows old age precisely as old age follows youth. He who does not wish to die cannot have wished to live, for life is granted to us with the reservation that we shall die. To this end our path leads. Therefore, how foolish it is to fear it, since men simply await that which is sure, but fear only that which is uncertain. 11. Death has its fixed rule, equitable and unavoidable. Who can complain when he is governed by terms which include everyone? The chief part of equity, however, is equality. But it is superfluous at the present time to plead nature's cause, for she wishes our laws to be identical with her own. She but resolves that which she has compounded, and compounds again that which she has resolved.
12. Moreover, if it falls to the lot of any man to be set gently adrift by old age, not suddenly torn from life, but withdrawn bit by bit, oh, verily he should thank the gods, one and all, because after he has had his fill, he is removed to a rest which is ordained for mankind, a rest that is welcome to the weary. You may observe certain men who crave death even more earnestly than others are one to beg for life, and do not know which men give us greater courage, those who call for death or those who meet it cheerfully and tranquilly. For the first attitude is sometimes inspired by madness and sudden anger, the second is the calm which results from fixed judgment. Before now men have gone to meet death in a fit of rage, but when death comes to meet him, no one welcomes it cheerfully, except the man who has long since composed himself for death. 13. I admit, therefore, that I have visited this dear friend of mine more frequently on many pretexts, but with the purpose of learning whether I should find him always the same, and whether his mental strength was perhaps waning in company with his bodily powers. But it was on the increase, just as the joy of the charioteer is wont to show itself more clearly when he is on the seventh round of the course and nears the prize. 14. Indeed, he often said, in accord with the counsels of Epicurus, I hope, first of all, that there is no pain at the moment when a man breathes his last, but if there is, one will find an element of comfort in its very shortness. For no great pain lasts long, and at all events, a man will find relief at the very time when soul and body are being torn asunder, even though the process be accompanied by excruciating pain, in the thought that after this pain is over he can feel no more pain. I am sure, however, that an old man's soul is on his very lips, and that only a little force is necessary to disengage it from the body. A fire which is seized upon a substance that sustains it needs water to quench it, or sometimes the destruction of the building itself, but the fire which lacks sustaining fuel dies away of its own accord. 15. I am glad to hear such words, my dear Lucilius, not as new to me, but as leading me into the presence of an actual fact. And what then? Have I not seen many men break the thread of life? I have indeed seen such men, but those have more weight with me who approach death without any loathing for life letting death in, so to speak, and not pulling it towards them. 16. Bassus kept saying, It is due to our own fault that we feel this torture, because we shrink from dying only when we believe that our end is near at hand. But who is not near death? It is ready for us in all places, at all times. Let us consider, he went on to say, when some agency of death seems imminent, how much nearer are other varieties of dying which are not feared by us. 17. A man is threatened with death by an enemy. But this form of death is anticipated by an attack of indigestion, and if we are willing to examine critically the various causes of our fear, we shall find that some exist, and others only seem to be. We do not fear death, we fear the thought of death, for death itself is always the same distance from us. Wherefore, if it is to be feared at all, it is to be feared always, for what season of our life is exempt from death? 18. But what I really ought to fear is that you will hate this long letter worse than death itself, so I shall stop. Do you, however, always think on death in order that you may never fear it? Farewell. Letter 31 on Siren Songs 1. Now I recognize my Lucilius. He is beginning to reveal the character of which he gave promise. Follow up the impulse which prompted you to make for all that is best, treading under your feet that which is approved by the crowd. I would not have you greater or better than you planned, for in your case, the mere foundations have covered a large extent of ground. Only finish all that you have laid out, and take in hand the plans which you have had in mind. 2. In short, you will be a wise man, if you stop up your ears, nor is it enough to close them with wax, 
you need a denser stopple than that which they say Ulysses used for his comrades. The song which he feared was alluring, but came not from every side. The song, however, which you have to fear, echoes round you not from a single headland, but from every quarter of the world. Sail therefore not past one region which you mistrust because of its treacherous delights, but past every city. Be deaf to those who love you most of all. They pray for bad things with good intentions, and if you would be happy, entreat the gods that none of their fond desires for you may be brought to pass. 3. What they wish to have heaped upon you are not really good things. There is only one good, the cause and the support of happy life, trust in oneself. But this cannot be attained, unless one has learned to despise toil and to reckon it among the things which are neither good nor bad. For it is not possible that a single thing should be bad at one time and good at another, at times light and to be endured, and at times a cause of dread. 4. Work is not a good. Then what is a good? I say, the scorning of work. That is why I should rebuke men who toil to no purpose. But when, on the other hand, a man is struggling towards honorable things, in proportion as he applies himself more and more, and allows himself less and less to be beaten or to halt, I shall recommend his conduct and shout my encouragement, saying, By so much you are better. Rise, draw a fresh breath, and surmount that hill, if possible, at a single spurt. 5. Work is the sustenance of noble minds. There is, then, no reason why, in accordance with that old vow of your parents, you should pick and choose what fortune you wish should fall to your lot, or what you should pray for. Besides, it is base for a man who has already traveled the whole round of highest honors to be still importuning the gods. What need is there of vows? Make yourself happy through your own efforts. You can do this, if once you comprehend that whatever is blended with virtue is good, and that whatever is joined to vice is bad. Just as nothing gleams if it has no light blended with it, and nothing is black unless it contains darkness or draws to itself something of dimness, and as nothing is hot without the aid of fire, and nothing cold without air, so it is the association of virtue and vice that makes things honorable or base. 6. What then is good? The knowledge of things. What is evil? The lack of knowledge of things. Your wise man, who is also a craftsman, will reject or choose in each case as it suits the occasion. But he does not fear that which he rejects, nor does he admire that which he chooses, if only he has a stout and unconquerable soul. I forbid you to be cast down or depressed. It is not enough if you do not shrink from work, ask for it. 7. But you say, is not trifling and superfluous work, and work that has been inspired by ignoble causes, a bad sort of work. No, no more than that which is expended upon noble endeavors, since the very quality that endures toil and rouses itself to hard and uphill effort, is of the spirit which says, Why do you grow slack? It is not the part of a man to fear sweat. 8. And besides this, in order that virtue may be perfect, there should be an even temperament and a scheme of life that is consistent with itself throughout. And this result cannot be attained without knowledge of things, and without the art which enables us to understand things human and things divine. That is the greatest good. If you seize this good, you begin to be the associate of the gods and not their suppliant. 9. But how do you ask? Does one attain that goal? You do not need to cross the Pennine or Grayan Hills, or traverse the Candavian Waste, or face the Surts or Stilip or Churidis. Although you have traveled through all these places for the bribe of a petty governorship, the journey for which nature has equipped you is safe and pleasant. She has given you such gifts that you may, if you do not prove false to them, rise level with God. 10. Your money, however, will not place you on a level with God, for God has no property. Your bordered robe will not do this, for God is not clad in raiment, nor will your reputation, 
nor a display of self, nor a knowledge of your name widespread throughout the world. For no one has knowledge of God. Many even hold him in low esteem, and do not suffer for so doing. The throng of slaves which carries your litter along the city streets and in foreign places will not help you. For this God of whom I speak, though the highest and most powerful of beings, carries all things on his own shoulders. Neither can beauty or strength make you blessed, for none of these qualities can withstand old age. 11. What we have to seek for, then, is that which does not each day pass more and more under the control of some power which cannot be withstood. And what is this? It is the soul, but the soul that is upright, good and great. What else could you call such a soul than a god dwelling as a guest in a human body? A soul like this may descend into a Roman knight just as well as into a freedman's son or a slave. For what is a Roman knight or a freedman's son or a slave? They are mere titles, born of ambition or of wrong. One may leap to heaven from the very slums, only rise, and mold thyself to kinship with thy God. This molding will not be done in gold or silver. An image that is to be in the likeness of God cannot be fashioned of such materials. Remember that the gods, when they were kind unto men, were molded in clay. Farewell. Letter 32 on Progress 1. I have been asking about you and inquiring of everyone who comes from your part of the country what you are doing and where you are spending your time and with whom. You cannot deceive me, for I am with you. Live just as if I were sure to get news of your doings, nay, as if I were sure to behold them. And if you wonder what particularly pleases me that I hear concerning you, it is that I hear nothing that most of those whom I ask do not know what you are doing. 2. This is sound practice, to refrain from associating with men of different stamp and different aims. And I am indeed confident that you cannot be warped, that you will stick to your purpose, even though the crowd may surround and seek to distract you. What, then, is on my mind? I am not afraid lest they work a change in you, but I am afraid lest they may hinder your progress. And much harm is done even by one who holds you back, especially since life is so short, and we make it still shorter by our unsteadiness, by making ever fresh beginnings at life, now one and immediately another. We break up life into little bits and fritter it away. 3. Hasten ahead then, dearest Lucilius, and reflect how greatly you would quicken your speed if an enemy were at your back or if you suspected the cavalry were approaching and pressing hard upon your steps as you fled. It is true, the enemy is indeed pressing upon you. You should therefore increase your speed and escape away and reach a safe position, remembering continually what a noble thing it is to round out your life before death comes, and then await in peace the remaining portion of your time, claiming nothing for yourself, since you are in possession of the happy life, for such a life is not made happier for being longer. 4. Oh, when shall you see the time when you shall know that time means nothing to you, when you shall be peaceful and calm, careless of the morrow, because you are enjoying your life to the full? Would you know what makes men greedy for the future? It is because no one has yet found himself. Your parents, to be sure, asked other blessings for you. But I myself pray rather that you may despise all those things which your parents wished for you in abundance. Their prayers plunder many another person, simply that you may be enriched. Whatever they make over to you must be removed from someone else. 5. I pray that you may get such control over yourself that your mind, now shaken by wandering thoughts, may at last come to rest and be steadfast, that it may be content with itself and having attained an understanding of what things are truly good. And they are in our possession as soon as we have this knowledge, that it may have no need of added years. He has at length passed beyond all necessities, he has won his honorable discharge and is free. 
who still lives after his life has been completed. Farewell. Letter 33 On the Futility of Learning Maxims 1. You wish me to close these letters also, as I closed my former letters, with certain utterances taken from the chiefs of our school. But they did not interest themselves in choice extracts. The whole texture of their work is full of strength. There is unevenness, you know, when some objects rise conspicuous above others. A single tree is not remarkable if the whole forest rises to the same height. 2. Poetry is crammed with utterances of this sort, and so is history. For this reason, I would not have you think that these utterances belong to Epicurus. They are common property and are emphatically our own. They are, however, more noteworthy in Epicurus, because they appear at infrequent intervals, and when you do not expect them. And because it is surprising that brave words should be spoken at any time by a man who made a practice of being effeminate. For that is what most persons maintain. In my own opinion, however, Epicurus is really a brave man, even though he did wear long sleeves. Fortitude, energy, and readiness for battle are to be found among the Persians, just as much as among men who have girded themselves up high. 3. Therefore, you need not call upon me for extracts and quotations. Such thoughts as one may extract here and there in the works of other philosophers run through the whole body of our writings. Hence we have no show-window goods, nor do we deceive the purchaser in such a way that, if he enters our shop, he will find nothing except that which is displayed in the window. We allow the purchasers themselves to get their samples from anywhere they please. 4. Suppose we should desire to sort out each separate motto from the general stock. To whom shall we credit them? To Zeno, Cleanthus, Chrysippus, Panaceus, or Posidonius? We Stoics are not subjects of a despot. Each of us lays claim to his own freedom. With them, on the other hand, whatever Hermarchus says or Metrodorus is ascribed to one source. In that brotherhood, everything that any man utters is spoken under the leadership and commanding authority of one alone. We cannot I maintain, no matter how we try, pick out anything from so great a multitude of things equally good. Only the poor man counts his flock. Wherever you direct your gaze, you will meet with something that might stand out from the rest, if the context in which you read it were not equally notable. 5. For this reason give over hoping that you can skim, by means of epitomes, the wisdom of distinguished men. Look into their wisdom as a whole, study it as a whole. They are working out a plan and weaving together, line upon line, a masterpiece, from which nothing can be taken away without injury to the whole. Examine the separate parts, if you like, provided you examine them as parts of the man himself. She is not a beautiful woman whose ankle or arm is praised, but she whose general appearance makes you forget to admire her single attributes. 6. If you insist, however, I shall not be niggardly with you, but lavish. For there is a huge multitude of these passages. They are scattered about in profusion. They do not need to be gathered together, but merely to be picked up. They do not drip forth occasionally. They flow continuously. They are unbroken and are closely connected. Doubtless, they would be of much benefit to those who are still novices and worshipping outside the shrine. For single maxims sink in more easily when they are marked off and bounded like a line of verse. 7. That is why we give to children a proverb, or that which the Greeks call kriya, to be learned by heart. That sort of thing can be comprehended by the young mind, which cannot as yet hold more. For a man, however, whose progress is definite, to chase after choice extracts and to prop his weakness are the best known and the briefest sayings and to depend upon his memory is disgraceful. It is time for him to lean on himself. He should make such maxims and not memorize them. For it is disgraceful, even for an old man, or one who has cited old age, to have a notebook knowledge. 
This is what Zeno said. But what have you yourself said? This is the opinion of cleanness. But what is your own opinion? How long shall you march under another man's orders, take command and utter some word which posterity will remember? Put forth something from your own stock. 8. For this reason I hold that there is nothing of eminence in all such men as these, who never create anything themselves but always lurk in the shadow of others, playing the role of interpreters, never daring to put once into practice what they have been so long in learning. They have exercised their memories on other men's material. But it is one thing to remember, another to know. Remembering is merely safeguarding something entrusted to the memory. Knowing, however, means making everything your own. It means not depending upon the copy and not all the time glancing back at the master. 9. Thus said Zeno, thus said Cleanthus, indeed. Let there be a difference between yourself and your book. How long shall you be a learner? From now on be a teacher as well. But why, one asks, should I have to continue hearing lectures on what I can read? The living voice, one replies, is a great help. Perhaps, but not the voice which merely makes itself the mouthpiece of another's words, and only performs the duty of a reporter. 10. Consider this fact also. Those who have never attained their mental independence begin, in the first place, by following the leader in cases where everyone has deserted the leader. Then, in the second place, they follow them in matters where the truth is still being investigated. However, the truth will never be discovered if we rest contented with discoveries already made. Besides, he who follows another not only discovers nothing, but is not even investigating. 11. What then? Shall I not follow in the footsteps of my predecessors? I shall indeed use the old road, but if I find one that makes a shorter cut and is smoother to travel, I shall open the new road. Men who have made these discoveries before us aren't our masters, but our guides. Truth lies open for all. It has not yet been monopolized, and there is plenty of it left even for posterity to discover. Farewell. Letter 34 on a promising pupil. 1. I grow in spirit and leap for joy and shake off my years, and my blood runs warm again, whenever I understand from your actions and your letters, how far you have outdone yourself. For as to the ordinary man, you left him in the rear long ago. If the farmer is pleased when his tree develops so that it bears fruit, if the shepherd takes pleasure in the increase of his flocks, if every man regards his pupil as though he discerned in him his own early manhood, what then? Do you think are the feelings of those who have trained a mind and molded a young idea when they see it suddenly grown to maturity? 2. I claim you for myself, you are my handiwork. When I saw your abilities, I laid my hand upon you, I exhorted you, I applied the goad and did not permit you to march lazily, but roused you continually. And now I do the same, but by this time I am cheering on one who is in the race, and so in turn cheers me on. 3. What else do you want of me then, you ask, the will is still mine? Well, the will in this case is almost everything, and not merely the half, as in the proverb, a task once begun is half done. It is more than half, for the matter of which we speak is determined by the soul. Hence it is that the larger part of goodness is the will to become good. You know what I mean by a good man? One who is complete finished, whom no constraint or need can render bad. 4. I see such a person in you, if only you go steadily on and bend to your task, and see to it that all your actions and words harmonize and correspond with each other and are stamped in the same mold. If a man's acts are out of harmony, his soul is crooked. Farewell. Letter 35 On the Friendship of Kindred Minds 1. When I urge you so strongly to your studies, it is my own interest which I am consulting. I want your friendship, and it cannot fall to my lot unless you proceed, as you have begun, 
with the task of developing yourself. For now, although you love me, you are not yet my friend. But, he replied, are these words of different meaning? Nay, more, they are totally unlike in meaning. A friend loves you, of course, but one who loves you is not in every case your friend. Friendship, accordingly, is always helpful, but love sometimes even does harm. Try to perfect yourself, if for no other reason, in order that you may learn how to love. 2. Hasten, therefore, in order that, while thus perfecting yourself for my benefit, you may not have learned perfection for the benefit of another. To be sure, I am already deriving some profit by imagining that we two shall be of one mind, and that whatever portion of my strength has yielded to age will return to me from your strength, although there is not so very much difference in our ages. 3. But yet I wish to rejoice in the accomplished fact. We feel a joy over those whom we love, even when separated from them, but such a joy is light and fleeting, the sight of a man, and his presence and communion with him, afford something of living pleasure. This is true, at any rate, if one not only sees the man one desires, but the sort of man one desires. Give yourself to me, therefore, as a gift of great price, and that you may strive the more, reflect that you yourself are mortal, and that I am old. 4. Hasten to find me, but hasten to find yourself first. Make progress, and before all else, endeavor to be consistent with yourself. And when you would find out whether you have accomplished anything, consider whether you desire the same things today that you desired yesterday. A shifting of the will indicates that the mind is at sea, heading in various directions, according to the course of the wind. But that which is settled and solid does not wander from its place. This is the blessed lot of the completely wise man, and also, to a certain extent, of him who is progressing and has made some headway. Now what is the difference between these two classes of men? The one is in motion, to be sure, but does not change its position. It merely tosses up and down where it is. The other is not in motion at all. Farewell. Letter 36. On the value of retirement. 1. Encourage your friend to despise stop-heartedly those who upbraid him because he has sought the shade of retirement and has abdicated his career of honors, and though he might have attained more, has preferred tranquility to them all. Let him prove daily to these detractors how wisely he has looked out for his own interests. Those whom men envy will continue to march past him. Some will be pushed out of the ranks and others will fall. Prosperity is a turbulent thing. It torments itself. It stirs the brain in more ways than one, goading men on to various aims, some to power and others to high living. Some it puffs up, others it slackens and wholly enervates. 2. But the retort comes, so-and-so carries his prosperity well. Yes, just as he carries his liquor. So you need not let this class of men persuade you that one who is besieged by the crowd is happy. They run to him as crowds rush for a pool of water, rendering it muddy while they drain it. But you say, men call our friend a trifler and a slugger. There are men, you know, whose speech is awry, who use the contrary terms. They call them happy. What of it? Was he happy? 3. Even the fact that to certain persons he seems a man of a very rough and gloomy cast of mind does not trouble me. Aristo used to say that he preferred a youth of stern disposition to one who was a jolly fellow and agreeable to the crowd. For, he added, wine which, when new, seemed harsh and sour, becomes good wine, but that which tasted well at the vintage cannot stand age. So let them call him stern and a foe to his own advancement. It is just this sternness that will go well when it is aged, provided only that he continues to cherish virtue and to absorb thoroughly the studies which make for culture not those with which it is sufficient for a man to sprinkle himself, but those in which the mind should be steeped. 4. Now is the time to learn. What? 
Is there any time when a man should not learn? By no means, but just as it is creditable for every age to study, so it is not creditable for every age to be instructed. An old man learning his ABC is a disgraceful and absurd object. The young man must store up, the old man must use. You will therefore be doing a thing most helpful to yourself if you make this friend of yours as good a man as possible. Those kindnesses, they tell us, are to be both sought for and bestowed, which benefit the giver no less than the receiver, and they are unquestionably the best kind. 5. Finally, he has no longer any freedom in the matter. He has pledged his word, and it is less disgraceful to compound with the creditor than to compound with the promising future. To pay his debt of money, the businessman must have a prosperous voyage, the farmer must have fruitful fields and kindly weather, but the debt which your friend owes can be completely paid by mere goodwill. 6. Fortune has no jurisdiction over character. Let him so regulate his character that in perfect peace he may bring to perfection that spirit within him, which feels neither loss nor gain, but remains in the same attitude, no matter how things fall out. A spirit like this, if it is heaped with worldly goods, rises superior to its wealth. If, on the other hand, chance has stripped him of a part of his wealth, or even all, it is not impaired. 7. If your friend had been born in Parthia, he would have begun, when a child, to bend the bow. If in Germany, he would forthwith have been brandishing his slender spear. If he had been born in the days of our forefathers, he would have learned to ride a horse and smite his enemy hand to hand. These are the occupations which the system of each race recommends to the individual, yes, prescribes for him. 8. To what, then, shall this friend of yours devote his attention? I say, let him learn that which is helpful against all weapons, against every kind of foe, contempt of death, because no one doubts that death has in it something that inspires terror, so that it shocks even our souls, which nature has so molded that they love their own existence. For otherwise, there would be no need to prepare ourselves, and to whet our courage to face that towards which we should move with a sort of voluntary instinct, precisely as all men tend to preserve their existence. 9. No man learns a thing in order that, if necessity arises, he may lie down with composure upon a bed of roses, but he steals his courage to this end, that he may not surrender his plighted faith to torture, and that, if need be, he may some day stay out his watch in the trenches, even though wounded without even leaning on his spear, because sleep is likely to creep over men who support themselves by any prop whatsoever. In death there is nothing harmful, for there must exist something to which it is harmful. 10. And yet, if you are possessed by so great a craving for a longer life, reflect that none of the objects which vanish from our gaze and are reabsorbed into the world of things, from which they have come forth and are soon to come forth again, is annihilated. They merely end their course and do not perish, and death, which we fear and shrink from, merely interrupts life, but does not steal it away. The time will return when we shall be restored to the light of day. And many men would object to this, were they not brought back in forgetfulness of the past. 11. But I mean to show you later with more care, that everything which seems to perish merely changes. Since you are destined to return, you ought to depart with a tranquil mind. Mark how the round of the universe repeats its course. You will see that no star in our firmament is extinguished, but that they all set and rise in alternation. Summer has gone, but another year will bring it again. Winter lies low, but will be restored by its own proper months. Night has overwhelmed the sun, but day will soon rout the night again. The wandering stars retrace their former courses. A part of the sky is rising unceasingly, and a part is sinking. 12. One word more, and then I shall stop infants and boys, and those who have gone mad, have no fear of death, 
and it is most shameful if reason cannot afford us the peace of mind to which they have been brought by their folly. Farewell. Letter 37 On Allegiance to Virtue 1. You have promised to be a good man. You have enlisted under oath. That is the strongest chain which will hold you to a sound understanding. Any man will be but mocking you if he declares that this is an effeminate and easy kind of soldiering. I will not have you deceived. The words of this most honorable compact are the same as the words of that most disgraceful one, to wit, through burning imprisonment or death by the sword. 2. From the men who hire out their strength for the arena, who eat and drink what they must pay for with their blood, security is taken that they will endure such trials even though they be unwilling, from you, that you will endure them willingly and with alacrity. The gladiator may lower his weapon and test the pity of the people, but you will neither lower your weapon nor bed for life. You must die erect and unyielding. Moreover, what profit is it to gain a few days or a few years? There is no discharge for us from the moment we are born. 3. Then how can I free myself, you ask? You cannot escape necessities, but you can overcome them. By force a way is made, and this way will be afforded you by philosophy. Betake yourself therefore to philosophy if you would be safe, untroubled, happy, and fine, if you wish to be. And that is most important, free. There is no other way to attain this end. 4. Folly is low, abject, mean, slavish, and exposed to many of the cruelest passions. These passions, which are heavy taskmasters, sometimes ruling by turns, and sometimes together, can be banished from you by wisdom, which is the only real freedom. There is but one path leading thither, and it is a straight path. You will not go astray. Proceed with steady step, and if you would have all things under your control, put yourself under the control of reason. If reason becomes your ruler, you will become ruler over many. You will learn from her what you should undertake, and how it should be done. You will not blunder into things. 5. You can show me no man who knows how he began to crave that which he craves. He has not been led to that pass by forethought. He has been driven to it by impulse. Fortune attacks us as often as we attack fortune. It is disgraceful, instead of proceeding ahead, to be carried along, and then suddenly amid the whirlpool of events, to ask in a dazed way, how did I get into this condition? Farewell. Letter 38. On Quiet Conversation. 1. You are right when you urge that we increase our mutual traffic in letters. But the greatest benefit is to be derived from conversation, because it creeps by degrees into the soul. Lectures prepared beforehand and spouted in the presence of a throng have in them more noise but less intimacy. Philosophy is good advice, and no one can give advice at the top of his lungs. Of course we must sometimes also make use of these harangues, if I may so call them, when a doubting member needs to be spurred on. But when the aim is to make a man learn, and not merely to make him wish to learn, we must have recourse to the low-toned words of conversation. They enter more easily and stick in the memory. For we do not need many words, but rather effective words. 2. Words should be scattered like seed. No matter how small the seed may be, if it has once found favorable ground, it unfolds its strength and from an insignificant thing spreads to its greatest growth. Reason grows in the same way. It is not large to the outward view, but increases as it does its work. Few words are spoken, but if the mind has truly caught them, they come into their strength and spring up. Yes, precepts and seeds have the same quality. They produce much, and yet they are slight things. Only as I said, let a favorable mind receive and assimilate them. Then of itself the mind also will produce bounteously in its turn, giving back more than it has received. Farewell.
Letter 39 On Noble Aspirations 1. I shall indeed arrange for you, in careful order and narrow compass, the notes which you request. But consider whether you may not get more help from the customary method than from that which is now commonly called a breviary. Though in the good old days, when real Latin was spoken, it was called a summary. The former is more necessary to one who is learning a subject, the latter to one who knows it. The one teaches, the other stirs the memory. But I shall give you abundant opportunity for both. A man like you should not ask me for this authority or that. He who furnishes a voucher for his statements argues himself unknown. 2. I shall therefore write exactly what you wish, but I shall do it in my own way. Until then, you have many authors whose works will presumably keep your ideas sufficiently in order. Pick up the list of the philosophers, that very act will compel you to wake up, when you see how many men have been working for your benefit. You will desire eagerly to be one of them yourself. For this is the most excellent quality that the noble soul has within itself, that it can be roused to honorable things. No man of exalted gifts is pleased with that which is low and mean. The vision of great achievement summons him and uplifts him. 3. Just as the flame springs straight into the air, and cannot be cabined or kept down any more than it can repose in quiet, so our soul is always in motion, and the more ardent it is, the greater its motion and activity. But happy is the man who has given it this impulse toward better things. He will place himself beyond the jurisdiction of chance. He will wisely control prosperity. He will lessen adversity and will despise what others hold in admiration. 4. It is the quality of a great soul to scorn great things and to prefer that which is ordinary rather than that which is too great. The one condition is useful and life-giving, but the other does harm just because it is excessive. Similarly, too rich a soil makes the grain fall flat, branches break down under too heavy a load, excessive productiveness does not bring fruit to ripeness. This is the case with the soul also, for it is ruined by uncontrolled prosperity, which is used not only to the detriment of others but also to the detriment of itself. 5. What enemy was ever so insolent to any opponent as are their pleasures to certain men? The only excuse that we can allow for the incontinence and mad lust of these men is the fact that they suffer the evils which they have inflicted upon others, and they are rightly harassed by this madness, because desire must have unbounded space for its excursions, if it transgresses nature's mean. For this has its bounds, but waywardness and the acts that spring from willful lust are without boundaries. 6. Utility measures our needs, but by what standard can you check the superfluous? It is for this reason that men sink themselves in pleasures, and they cannot do without them when once they have become accustomed to them and for this reason they are most wretched, because they have reached such a pass that what was once superfluous to them has become indispensable, and so they are the slaves of their pleasures instead of enjoying them. They even love their own ills, and that is the worst ill of all. Then it is that the height of unhappiness is reached, when men are not only attracted, but even pleased, by shameful things, and when there is no longer any room for a cure, now that those things which once were vices have become habits. Farewell. Chill books. Audiobooks with relaxing music, visuals, and subtitles to help you stay engaged.